well, hello. Probably seems a very arbitrary thing to switch mics, but, you know, keep things in their lane, I suppose. I'm just used to using that one. So, I'm sure you guys have heard the expression before, you know, when, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Like, that's, that's, that's a pretty common idiom that I hope most of you have heard anyway. It's never a flattering thing to have told about yourself, you know, if somebody says, oh, geez, all you have is a hammer, so everything looks like a nail. What they're really saying is you've become so, like, tunnel-visioned, right, that has become a problem, like, your, your scope of understanding has really shrunk to seeing the only the things that you want to see. Um, and you, you see the things you're looking for in everything. Um, again, not the most flattering thing to have said about you. Though I have had that said about me on several occasions. Um, I remember in particular, uh, when, when Bailey and I were engaged... Um, she pointed out that in every single sermon I preached, I was using a, a marriage illustration. Like, you know, that was so front of mind that I was seeing, you know, wedding motifs in every single passage. And to that, I, you know, fought back. I was like, no, 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 no. That is just a, a due and beautiful metaphor for this particular sermon. This is, this is not a hammer and nails kind of deal. Well, today... If you were to, you know, levy that accusation against me and say I've got hammer and nails kind of thinking, um, I'd say, yeah, that's, that's kind of fair. I get where you're coming from. I'm not going to push back on this one. Because you see, today in our teaching schedule, we're on to Luke 6. You know, it stands to reason. Shana did a lovely job preaching Luke 5 last week. And, and Luke 6 is a really long uh, chapter. There's 49 verses in Luke 6 and some really famous um, scenes in Luke 6 as well. There's the, uh, there's the Sermon on the Plains, you know, kind of Luke's version of the Beatitudes, the, the calling of the 12 disciples. Like, Luke 6 is a really consequential, long chapter of 49 verses. And I stopped reading after verse 11 because the first 11 verses deal with Sabbath. And I was like, well, I needn't go any further. Now need I? You know, I'll be on sabbatical in... 90 minutes. And so even though on our schedule today is this 49-verse chapter that deals with so many important things, I want us to hear a reading from Luke 6, 1 through 11. It's a hammer and nails kind of day. So now hear a reading from Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. I'll let Mike deal with the rest next time. You know, I won't be here, so he can do what he wants. Jesus was going through the grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples picked some heads of wheat, rubbed them in their hands, and ate them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry, how he entered the house of God, took and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for any to eat but the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? Then he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now a man was there whose right hand was withered. The experts in the law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Get up, stand here. So he rose and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, 
to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with mindless rage and began debating with one another what they would do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, speak to us through the Holy Spirit. Give your bride what she needs. Jesus, thank you for your activity in this world that has been recorded. We ask that we would hear what it is you're saying to the church through this text this morning. Jim, we pray. Amen. Okay, so two, two little anecdotes, two little things that happened on two different Sabbaths. And, and if you're anything like me, you know, after reading those stories, you're just like rolling your eyes at the Pharisees, right? Like you're just positively annoyed with these guys. Like what scandals, my goodness. In that first story, the the disciples had the audacity to pick a few grains of wheat with their hand, you know, thresh them out and eat them. Like, and that's what they want to pick a fight over. And then the second, the second of the two stories, Jesus has the gall to heal somebody on the Sabbath. And then at the end of these two stories, the text indicates that their rage burned to white hot proportions, right? And you know, Luke is writing to Theophilus after the execution and resurrection of Jesus. So we all kind of know where this story is going. And the last verse kind of says the Pharisees discussed what they were going to do with him, which was Luke's way of kind of foreshadowing, like the dominoes have been flipped, right? Like one will lead to another that will end in his execution. He knew it. Theophilus knew it at the time of his reading. We know it. And for this and the, the Greek language is, is intense, you know, we, we have some intense language in the English translation, but the Greek language just means they like seethed, they were fuming, they were foaming at the mouth, they were overwhelmed and thought, what are we going to do with this guy? Spoiler, we're going to kill him because of this, because the disciples picked a few heads of wheat on a Sabbath, and Jesus, you know, not for nothing, didn't even do anything on the Sabbath when he healed. He didn't work, he stood and he spoke. That's not unlawful. So this, like really, guys, this is what has led to your fuming, your foaming, and this plan to execute this man. You know, in our list of characters, right, they would be the clear antagonist, and that's that's obvious. There's, there's no other place to put your stake in the antagonist of the story. No one wants to stand on the side of the antagonist, right? But after after studying, after spending some time with this, after praying and reading, would it be crazy to say, not only did I not see this as that big an overreaction, but I kind of saw a little bit where they were coming from? 
And, you know, I don't love that feeling. Nobody, nobody loves when you start to sympathize with the clear antagonist in a story, right? Like, it makes me think of uh, the, the movie A Few Good Men, if you've ever seen that. You know, there's, there's the famous courtroom scene where Tom Cruise yells, I want the truth, and Colonel Jessup uh, says in response, you can't handle the truth. And, you know, everybody knows that line. But then what comes after it is really important. He kind of goes into this monologue. And again, if you're not familiar with the story, um, there, there's this trial for murder. And Colonel Jessup is one of the witnesses. Maybe he's complicit. Maybe he's not. And he's being questioned. And after that classic line, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. He breaks out into this monologue and says, you rest soundly under the blanket of my protection and then dare question the means by which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. Santiago's death might have been tragic, but the fact of the matter is it saved lives. Aaron Sorkin, who is the screenwriter for A Few Good Men, said he intentionally put that monologue in to this, put it in the mouth of a character who was just the villain the entire movie because he wanted to watch his audience squirm. That's what he said about it. He stood at the back of the room of the premiere and just watched people kind of squirm after that monologue, like, oh, I don't like this guy, but that made a little bit of sense. And I feel really uneasy sitting in that place. Or, you know, perhaps a, a more recent example, a, a movie that's been on in my home a lot because it's one of those things that will soothe James no matter what, is Moana. Now, Moana's father is also this kind of anti, um, just antagonist type, right? Like, he's annoying to the viewer. Moana just wants to take a boat and go out to the water. The simplest of requests. They live on an island for crying out loud. Like, what could be wrong with that? And time and time and time and time again... Moana's dad puts his foot down and says, no, you will not go out to see, like, I forbid it. And you wonder, like, why is he being such a stick in the mud about this? Like, what an annoying guy. I wish he would just lighten up, my gosh. And then you find out that it's because when he was a younger man, he and his friend took a boat out into the deep water. His friend fell overboard, and he wasn't fast enough swimmer to save him. So he watched his friend slowly drown. Yeah, it's a kid's story. Sorry, James. And so there's this character who annoys you for the most, most of the story, and then you start to see where they're coming from a little bit, and you start to soften your disposition to their opinions a little. You know, it's, it's what Brene Brown would call a never-again moment. Like, I will never let this happen again. I don't care how unyielding and inflexible I have to be, never again. You know, these, these kind of events really shape and color how we look at the world and how we interact with the world, you know. From as simple as I fell off my bike and I got really hurt and scared, never again. I'm never getting on a bike. It doesn't matter if somebody buys me a bike. I'll throw the thing on a, on a dump pile. It doesn't matter. Never again. Or I was in a romantic relationship and it was really, really wounding to me. Uh, so never again. I will not trust in this kind of relationship again. You know, never, never again. I will be as unyielding as I have to be to protect from myself from this thing I was exposed to earlier. These things are, are true in each of our stories, whether we know it or not. And they, they really color the way we interact with and see the world. And that's important 
to remember when you acknowledge that the Jewish people had their own never again moment, right? Like extremely prominent in their corporate memory was the exile. You know, their, their, their collective rebellion against God and their disregard for the laws of Torah led to this decades-long punishment. This existed very much in the public psyche as a never-again moment. And especially when you consider that at the time of the punishment and the exile, one of the chief charges brought against them was their treatment of Sabbath. The, the prophet Nehemiah writing to the people in these days said, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them onto donkeys along with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, bringing them into Jerusalem on Sabbath day. So I warned them. The people from Tyre who lived there were bringing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem of all places. So I registered a complaint with the nobles of Judah saying to them, what is this evil that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? That was the prophet Nehemiah and then the prophet of Jeremiah who also wrote to the people said, speaking for the Lord so even more powerfully, the Lord says, Yahweh says, be careful if you value your lives. That'll, that'll cause you to pause and consider what you're doing. Yahweh says, be careful if you value your lives. Do not carry any loads in through the gates of Jerusalem on Sabbath day. Do not carry any loads out of your houses or do any work on the Sabbath day, but observe the Sabbath day as a day set apart to the Lord as I commanded your ancestors. Again, this is God speaking. Your ancestors, however, did not listen to me or pay attention to me. They stubbornly refused to pay attention or to respond to any discipline. So going back to our two short little stories to start Luke and the overreaction, big reaction at the very least, of the Pharisees. You kind of have to wonder, like, were these just, you know, a group of annoying sticklers who were lying in wait to catch Jesus up in anything he did? Or were they a sect of hyperly anxious, never again people? Well, you know, in fairness, both are probably true. But it's also hard not to see a little bit where they're coming from, right? You know, Colonel Jessup is making some modicum of sense here. And especially when you consider this about Sabbath. So the Sabbath is the only Jewish ritual that's listed in the Ten Commandments. That alone kind of puts it in its own tier. And it's mentioned in the Torah more than any other mitzvah or good deed. And in fact, rabbis throughout Jewish history said that observation of the Sabbath was the single most defining characteristic of a Jewish person, even more so than circumcision, right? Like this thing you do to observe Sabbath is more important than how you mark your bodies. It is a key element of identification. And because of that, there are more requirements and stipulations related to Sabbath in Torah than anything else. You know, this wasn't just another in a long registry of ordinances given to the people, it ranked right up there with honor the Lord your God. Okay, so now that we've seen a little bit 
what might have been motivating these Pharisees, you have to ask, what's Jesus doing? Like, was he just poking the bear on purpose? Was he making light of this ritual? Like, what? What was, what was Jesus doing? Well, you see, Sabbath had become so buried in the weeds. It was so badly veiled by extra stipulations that I think Jesus was taking an opportunity to do two things. First, to talk about himself. And second, to reintroduce to the people who had become so bogged down and confused by these stipulations what it was his hopes were for them to actually do as they observed the Sabbath, what it was he was actually hoping they would experience as they observed the Sabbath. Again, these perhaps hyper-anxious, never-again Pharisees put thousands, and I literally mean thousands, of extra stipulations that were so hyper-specific around and on top of what you can do and you can't do on Sabbath, And so you had to pay such close, agonizing, tiring attention to everything you were doing in order to get it right and to keep God from being mad at you. You know, for for instance, they came up with the rule that on Sabbath, you could only walk 1,999 paces. Anything more than that would constitute a journey, and a journey constitutes work. So count your steps, literally. Count your steps. Don't take more than two thousands. Or, and I liked this one, if a chicken leg is an egg, you cannot pick it up. That was one of the Pharisees' rules. Can't do it on Sabbath. You may not light a candle, but you can hire a Gentile to light the candle for you on the Sabbath. And I could go on and on and on and on. Literally thousands of extra stipulations that the Pharisees imposed onto this ritual day never again right never again will we let our foot slip and so by the time that jesus walked the earth this really important thing you know this thing that was talked about in torah more than anything else had become so mired by rules that the plot was lost entirely in fact, we, we kind of see that, and I think it's really funny, in the, the initial charge that the Pharisees bring against Jesus, you know, his disciples pick a few grains of wheat, kind of thresh them in their hand and eat them. And they're like, no, 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 that's wrong. You can't do that. You're breaking the law. What's kind of hilarious about that is that hyper-specific instance was actually given explicit permission in Deuteronomy. It was a way of caring for the poor. Yeah, you couldn't go out and thresh your field, but you could go out And it's said, if you were hungry, you could go into a neighboring field and with your hands, take what you needed to eat. It was a a provision for the poor. And so these experts in the law are identifying themselves as people who don't really know the law. They know their law. They know the stipulations they put on it. Oh, they know them well. But they don't actually remember the law. And so all all of Sabbath has become so pixelated to become so shrouded by the other things that they came up with. And so I think Jesus makes his twofold intention plain in verse 5 when he says this ground-shaking line that we just kind of read over. And it was, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Ground-shaking. 
the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, a surface-level interpretation of that might just be like, well, Jesus is saying, I have authority to do what I want on the Sabbath, so leave me alone. Yeah, he has, a, he has authority. That's not a wrong interpretation. That's there. But he's saying so much more than that. You see, when he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, you have to remember where Sabbath originated. Sabbath, Sabbath wasn't initiated for the very first time in the law. It was reinitiated in the law. You see, Sabbath was a practice for the Hebrews up until the time they were in Egypt. And then the Egyptians thought, we could get a lot more done if these pesky Hebrews didn't keep taking a day off each week. And so in a very real and literal sense, Sabbath was beaten out of these people for 400 years. And it just became lost and forgotten to history. And so at Sinai, when the law is given, Sabbath isn't being introduced. Sabbath is being reintroduced. Sabbath has its origins in creation, right? Like Genesis 2, verse 1. The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. By the seventh day, God, or God finished the work that he had been doing and he ceased on the seventh day all the work that he had been doing. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he ceased all the work that he was doing in creation. So Sabbath is immediately supposed to draw your mind back to creation. So when Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, what he's also saying is, I'm the Lord of creation. Even more plainly, I am the creator. I am the one who rested on the seventh day. I am the one who gave shape to Sabbath. Sabbath was my idea. This is what he was making entirely plain about himself and perhaps makes a little bit more sense why the Pharisees would have had white hot rage after Jesus says, I'm the Lord of creation. I am the creator. I am the one who rested on the seventh day. Sabbath was my idea. I gave you Sabbath. This is what he's saying about himself. But then he's also talking like this to reintroduce to them the proper way to think about Sabbath. In pulling them back to creation and by pulling apart all the weeds and the thick veil that has covered this ritual, he's reintroducing his heart for it when he pulls them back to creation and says, when you think of Sabbath, let that take you back to creation. Better yet, my people, let that take you back to Eden. Right? And what was life like in Eden? It was a place of freely receiving from God. Eden was a place of freely receiving from God by virtue of his creation just given to you. You know, enjoy the garden. I, I made it for you. I placed you here with intention. Enjoy the garden. What else was life like in the garden? It was a place where the people rested and they convened with God. They had discussion. They worshiped. They walked together. And Jesus is saying, Do away with these undue burdens on my Sabbath day. Let Sabbath bring you back to Eden. Let Sabbath be a weekly taste of life 
in Eden. And you know, what a tragic deviation the people had taken. Again, motivated by this never again mentality. They were like, we can't put a foot wrong on this day or God's going to be mad. When what Jesus was saying to them is actually what I want for you on this day is not to keep in my good graces, not to keep my anger tamped down. What I want for you on this day is to taste Eden again. That is what is so important to me. And you know, I think we, we tend to fall into the more pharisaical side of do's and don'ts as it relates to Sabbath in our own lives. I think that's why so many of us are bad at keeping Sabbath. Because we have these ideas for Sabbath in our home. Like, well, if I'm to truly rest, if I'm truly going to, you know, with integrity observe the Sabbath, I need to turn off my phone. I need to turn off the TV. I need to read a certain amount of scripture. I need to put my chores away. I need, and, like, you just kind of create a list of things to do in your home. And then you don't do it. We don't keep Sabbath. Because why would we? If Sabbath was just another day of burdensome tasks so God doesn't get mad, why would we invest in this thing? Why would we prioritize it at all? Does it maybe sound a little bit sweeter and a little bit more enticing and invite you into rest if you think that one day a week God wants you to just taste Eden? To remember what that was like? So recall how I said that uh, Sabbath was the only Jewish ritual listed in the Ten Commandments. The wording around it is really interesting. And in fact, you know, it's the fourth commandment. There's more said about Sabbath in the Ten Commandments than any other commandment, which is interesting. And it starts this way. Remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. The verb remember isn't used anywhere else in the Ten Commandments as kind of our imperative for what we're supposed to do. Remember the Sabbath. And now this is key. Remember, the word here is zakar. That's the verb to remember. Zakar was also the word used for the creation of man. He created zakar. So even in the wording of the ritual in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath is supposed to pull you back to a creation ideology. Fundamental to proper Sabbath observance is remembering creation and receiving from creation remembering and receiving from the creator that's at its very heart and so when we look and because it's true there there are a lot of stipulations in torah about sabbath there's there's a ton of them and so i can understand why we would draw a line from that to making rules in our own home but the heart of the rules are really interesting as well all these regulations around Sabbath and Torah are like, don't cook, don't make a fire, don't water your plants, don't thresh your fields. What it's doing is it's prohibiting creative activities. All of it, all of these stipulations are prohibiting creative activities. Why? Because as we cease creating, we are pulled back and given an opportunity to remember him and his creation we receive his created provision. We taste once more for a brief moment Eden. And, you know, we talk about Sabbath as rest, and that's right. That's exactly what it is. You know, the Bible describes it that way, so I'm not going to redefine it. But I do want to add two more R words into the conversation that I think will color how we rest. 
and it's remembering and it's receiving, right? We rest from our work in order to remember and receive. And we can call all of this worship. That's a pretty adequate definition for what I'm describing here. Now back to my, you know, hammer and nails for a second. Um, in, I don't know, 30 minutes, my sabbatical starts. I'm very excited about that. And my, the hope for my family is that over these next three months, we would be in a mode of resting in order to remember and receive. And actually, that's my hope for each of you as well. Sabbath, as it was described in Torah, is intentionally communal, right? This is, this is how it's talked about in the Ten Commandments. Um, there it is. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not, shall not do any work. And hear this. You, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your cattle, or the resident foreigner who is in your gates. The scope of Sabbath was deliberately broad, right? It was collectively enjoyed. It was for all the people. And this is my dream for the church. As we together, because we'll all feel it, we are suspending for a time our ordinary rhythms. We are all entering a season that will ask us to think differently about our typical lives. And that's the whole point, right? Like I... Guys, I, I, I couldn't begin to quantify or articulate the affection I feel for this church. I will miss you sorely over the next several months. You know, Bailey and I have talked, this is a good thing, but it's kind of a sad thing. You know, we're, we're pulling away for a few months. I will miss you. But in that space, there is opportunity for you to remember something really important. And that's that even though I love this place, Mike loves this place, we are not the heads of this church. We will never be the heads of this church. In this season where I'm not here, remember that Christ is the head of this church. And in doing so, we suspend the ordinary rhythms of our lives and remember and worship and grow uniquely and are given opportunity to receive from his hand whatever it is he has for this church in this season. Sabbatical extends to all of you, not in the same way. I'm sorry, you guys can't all come with us to Wisconsin, but you have opportunity to remember and to receive from him in this season as we set aside our ordinary rhythms. Taste Eden. And I would say on the other side of resurrection, we're not only invited to taste Eden when we have Sabbath, but we are also invited to sample the menu of the supper that is to come. That's Sabbath at its best. Tasting Eden and looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb where we eat that from that menu. And that's why we have communion every Sunday. Because this is, this, is this is our day of rest. This is our day of Sabbath. This is our day of worship. This is our day where we remember and we receive from God, and so we also preview the menu that is to come. And so, church, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. After giving thanks for it, he broke it and said, This is my body. Take and eat. Receive. Receive. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for forgiveness. And every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, what are we doing? We're remembering and we're receiving. Rest in this reality. Taste of Eden. Look forward to the menu to come. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And so come and receive them with thanksgiving in your heart. Let's pray together. Jesus, it's really hard for us to cease what we're doing, to put our own work aside, and to remember your work, to cease caring for ourselves and making provisions for ourselves, and to receive from your hand. We ask that right now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would be giving us ways that we can bring Sabbath rest remembering, receiving into our homes. We trust you with that task. We love you. And I pray. Amen. So Chuck and Dave will be administering the elements today so I can get back onto stage. You can come uh, up this aisle and head back to your seat. And let's worship as we come. <laughs>